Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording the show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. So you've recycled, you try to shop locally, all your light bulbs are LED. There are lots of actions we can take at home that might slow climate change. But what about at the community level? How can our local towns act more thoughtfully in the face of the clear impacts of a changing climate? Our program today will take a look at some of the ways that local citizens have taken climate action. Our guests include leaders of A Climate to Thrive based on Mount Desert Island, Green Ellsworth, Freeport Climate Action Now, and the Blue Hill Peninsula Climate Coalition. So I'm glad to welcome some folks who can help us with our conversation. Um, Johanna Blackman is the Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive. Welcome to you, Johanna. Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Mary Blackstone is the Community Liaison with Green Ellsworth. Welcome to you, Mary. Thank you very much, Ron. Love this show. Glad to be on it. And Kathleen Sullivan, who is the Acting Lead at Freeport Climate Action Now. Welcome to you, Kathleen. Thank you. Nice to be here with you and with these other women from the other organizations. Sure. Well, let's let's get started um, with a kind of brief background sketch of each of you. Um, uh, Johanna, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in climate work. Sure. So I um, took a guest circuitous route to climate work. Um, I was living in San Francisco around 2007, 2008 um, in graduate school for counseling psychology. And I'd grown up um, during the time when, you know, global warming was talked about a little bit in school and we all made posters about recycling. And so recycling was like the big thing that was associated with environmentalism, which I'd love to talk about later in the program, Um, but not hearing a lot about climate change yet um, or having it like framed as thus. And I was living in San Francisco, um, as I said, in graduate school, and it was what was meant to be the rainy season in Northern California, and it was not raining. And the the temperature, the climate was so clearly different um, than it had been my prior years living in Northern California. So I started doing some research and I went down a rabbit hole <laughs> and I've never come out. Um, And so, you know, started with an obsession with my own personal carbon footprint um, and quickly recognized that that there was a limit to what I could do there and probably a limit to how much that was actually going to change things. And so got um, very active in like 350.org, you know, protests and marches and things like that, organizing and then moved back to um, the Northeast and here to Maine and started to apply my psychology Um, degree to climate communications and how best to communicate about climate change and consulting with groups about that. Um, And then eventually founded a Climate to Thrive with a group of other local MDI citizens. Great. Mary, what's your story? How did you get started in this particular um, effort of of climate work? 
Um, well, I, I guess my heart was always in science uh, when I went off to university. Um, and one of my first experiences there was to um, read as part of the honors required reading uh, Rachel Car Carson's Silent Spring. And that was a formative uh, reading assignment for me. And it really, um, it sparked an interest in sustainability, uh, the way in which we interface with our environment and being sustainable in that process as early as my, <laughs> my days in, in university. Um, I've always been an avid gardener and an outdoors woman. And I think anybody who's interested in those two endeavors is inevitably aware um, very um, immediately of the changes that are happening in our in our climate. And um, that actually, uh, in that context, I'm very involved in the Ellsworth Garden Club. And that organization has historically done two green plans previous to the one that was recently done. Um, in 2015, uh, they came uh, together in a, in a meeting saying it's time we did another green plan. And then people said, you know, back in the 80s, a green plan meant something quite different from what it needs to be today. And that really launched me on a journey as I became the liaison person from the Garden Club to Green Ellsworth. And um, the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> Great. Kathleen, how about your... Um, story. How, how did you start to become aware of and get involved in climate work? Well, my story goes back actually quite far. Um, it goes back to the uh, late 80s. Um, I had been doing some work uh, around the model started by Joanna Macy. Uh, it was in answer to the worries about um, the, uh, in the nuclear threat at the time and nuclear energy. And um, I learned her model then that was really a model that was addressing de the despair and empowerment. And I was very interested in that because, like Johanna, I also have a background in psychology. I'm a clinical social worker and have been accumulating stories about people for 50 years. So uh, the, the, I was very taken with her model and I was working with a bunch of psychologists then around that. We had a group, we'd come together, we'd talk about our fears and our concerns for what was going to happen to the world uh, if we were to use nuclear weapons. Um, and then uh, a couple of years later, my daughter came, who was at the time nine years old, came home from school and said, Mom, I've just learned about chlorofluorocarbons in the, in the air, and I'm worried that I'm going to have to live underground because I'm afraid the sun is going to be so strong that I'm going to have to ride my bike underground which broke my living heart. <laughs> and so I said, I used the same model. I said, bring, are your friends worried? She said, yes. I said, bring them home and we'll talk about it. So she came home and we talked about it and we formed a group called Cake, Concerned About Kids' Environment. And we, and we, we researched it and we discovered that what you could do is ban the CFCs. So we brought an, a... Um, ordinance in the town of Freeport. They came and testified to the town council and so did the McDonald's lawyers in their suits. And actually, so they won. Uh, we, we put in, that was one of the first ordinances in the, in the country banning CFCs. And, but by the next year, CFCs were banned. 
And that really launched me on a career of understanding the way in which working at a very local level could change things at a much higher level, could mm -hmm. influence and ripple. People from all, we were invited onto the Today Show and people and the little girls came in their Laura Ashley dresses and talked about what they did and people from all over the country contacted us. Then I must say, I sort of gave up my environmental work until very recently when I began to have the exact same experience my daughter had and feeling great despair about what was happening around the environment. I had edited, co-edited a book in, out in 2019 uh, called um, A Dangerous New World, Main Voices on the Climate Crisis. And that sort of got me somewhere, but it it all sort of died after um, the pandemic, all the talks we were supposed to give throughout the state. And I began to feel very isolated and in despair myself. And I can tell you a little bit later about what I did after that. But it does follow the Joanna Macy model. Right. Well, I would say um, just keep going in terms of the cr creation of uh Freeport Climate Action Now. Um, obviously, you got involved again um, in the pandemic to get something started. Tell us briefly that story. Okay, so it was last October, September, when um, I, I rose early one morning, just as the sun rose, and I don't. And the sun was so scarlet, it scared the living bejesus out of me. And it was scarlet because of the smoke. We all. I didn't know it at the time, but because of the smoke from the fires out west. And I, it was so disturbing. But what I was most disturbed by is that not enough people were talking about what was happening. You know, I felt very isolated. You know, the conversation would begin, oh, yes, the fires. And then we'd talk about, you know, and what are you having for dinner? And I myself began to feel very isolated and kind of in despair about not knowing what to do. So um, I decided to take my own advice and start talking about my despair to my friends. And then little by very quickly, very quickly, other people shared their own despair. You know, we don't, we're not really a country that talks about despair. We are kind of like, you know, you know, best phrase forward, let's be strong. But people began to share their fears and despairs. And I used the exact same model, you know, let's talk about what we can do together. And we brainstormed what we could do. And by January 20th, we had a big town meeting. Uh, 150 people came to our Zoom meeting and we signed up people for 10 different committees in town that are action committees. And there are now 60 people actively involved in Freeport. And I can speak more about, I think, why that's happening. Great, great. Mary, um, t tell us about um, what happened when the when the Garden Club in Ellsworth realized they needed a, a little more robust green plan, and that led to Green Ellsworth. Um, well, we went to Mich then city planner Michelle Gagnon and asked if the city would like to partner with us in creating a, a green plan. At that point, uh, our, our current uh, comprehensive plan was put in place in 2004. And so at, uh, even in 2017, when we decided to move forward, um, it was considerably out of date. Michelle was planning to move to get the comprehensive plan um, tackled and saw this green plan as a huge op uh, opportunity uh, to simply plug into that, um, that plan. 
So the city and the garden club hosted a public forum uh, in January of 2017. Um, we very quickly realized that we had underestimated our crowd and we, you know, we had everything from um, school kids to uh, seniors present, uh, business people, uh, to educators, to representatives from nonprofits present. Um, and it was, um, you know, I think um, Kathleen's comment about uh, talking it out. Um, we've to date we've held over 30 public forums on various aspects of the green planning that we've that we've done and getting a community together to talk things out they are not necessarily in agreement and that's all the better because then you have have it out on the floor and you can talk it through and um so those that that public forum the there was a very strong feeling that we needed a green plan, that the community needed to be heading towards a more sustainable plan. And we had some very good advice early on from a group of COA students who told us that it would be very important if we're going to do a plan, that we also do small projects simultaneously with the plan. It was terrific advice. It took us longer to do the plan, but we learned a huge amount from the small projects and we engaged people in a way that we would not have otherwise done. So um, of the people that actually participated in the writing of the green plan, there were a hundred and some community members over multiple subcommittees that were involved. And that has had a huge impact on how the plan has settled in the community, how it has been adopted in the community. Great. So, Johanna, tell us a little bit more about A Climate to Thrive. And I certainly remember a meeting, um, a gathering, um, when many people came together. Start there, perhaps. Sure. Well, I'll go back a few months prior to that um, and just echo both Kathleen and Mary. And, you know, whenever anybody asks me, what is the best thing that I can do about climate change? I always say, start talking about it with everybody that you know, because lots of people are thinking about it. Lots of people are feeling about it. Um, and a lot of people want to do something and just aren't sure what is the best, first, most effective thing to do. And together, we are much stronger than we are individually. Um, and so that's exactly how Climate Thrive began in the fall of 2015, when a group of us started to meet for potluck dinners and talk about our concerns about climate change and our frustration at the inaction at the national and international levels and think about what we could do here on MDI in our communities. And so we came up with this goal of energy independence by 2030, um, and we held and, and with different action areas, you know, aimed at that goal. And we held our launch event in early 2016 at the neighborhood house. And that might be what you're referring to, Ron, and had over 200 people show up. So similar thing, when that invitation is extended, people come. Um, and we broke into focus groups to develop initial plans and projects um, in the areas of transportation, clean energy, energy efficiency, 
local food systems, zero waste and public policy. And because there were so many community members there, everybody, you know, had connections to groups that were already wanting to do things like this and didn't have time or the connections or the resources. And so we spent our first few years on the projects that came out of that meeting um, and, you know, really were a catalyst for where there was existing interest. Um, and it's, it's grown and snowballed since there. We've increased solar production here on MDI five times over where it was when we began um, and done countless projects. We started a, um, or established an electric vehicle charging corridor through down East Maine, worked with businesses on reducing greenhouse gases and waste, um, written municipal climate action plans, have an internship program, education program, and just keep going from there. Great. Well, we're going to take a, a few minutes and hear from um, Alan Kratz, um, who is with Blue Hill Peninsula tomorrow. He couldn't be with us on this particular recording, so I spoke with him the other day and hear his um, his story about um, climate coalition um, in the Blue Hill Peninsula. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in, in climate work? So I serve on the Climate Change and Sea Level Rise Committee in Brooksville. I was appointed by the Select Board, and I've also served on the, and continue to serve on the Comprehensive Plan Committee and helped write the climate change chapter for our comp plan. Climate change really became real for me when I lived in New Jersey and following Superstorm Sandy. Uh, the town of Hoboken, where I lived, was badly hit. Uh, I was president of the board of the library and was responsible for overseeing a floodproofing project of our library. And I became very aware of the uh, availability of federal, state, county, city, and nonprofit funding to help us. And I decided I would get involved in climate change, thinking about and helping communities secure funding for climate resilience. So that's mm. really uh, the skill, the expertise that I've been uh, using uh, with pro bono and other clients uh, here in Maine and elsewhere. So, um, and, and in your town, um, what was the reaction as you began to work on these issues? Um, how did people kind of respond to the need to, to think ahead? So I'm really impressed with how, what we've done in Brooksville, because when we started the comprehensive plan update, we decided to ask questions about climate change. And rather than asking people for a scientific analysis, we ask for anecdotal information. Have you noticed changes in the weather? Have you noticed changes in what you're catching? What's the, um, what's the vegetation? Are you finding that there's a greater infestation of pests? Are you seeing saltwater intrusion into drinking wells? We asked this sort of question and we got a lot of good response, more than I think we expected. People really were able to relate to climate change in a very non-threatening, personal, lived experience, anecdotal way. And I say anecdotal, not to, uh, rather than, uh, anecdotal is, is important because all of us are going to be learning about how the climate is changing for us and what we need to do to mitigate the change and adapt to it. I think back on the the records that farmers kept over the years um, when they planted, when they harvested, all of those things. Those are anecdotal things, but they're also being translated into into science, and uh, right. so we, we we see that that change. Well, um, and we also me, would call it. I would call it climate science. That's uh, sort of the new phrase that we call it. Sure, and, uh, it's a very important aspect. 
So, um, but you're also banded together as a peninsula. Um, talk a little bit about how that came to be. Um, uh, peninsula Tomorrow, Blue Hill Peninsula Tomorrow has been around for a while, but it sounds like you've, you've picked up the issue of, of climate change uh, specifically. When we began our work with the Sea Level Rise and Climate Change Committee in Brooksville, we decided that we would look for some expertise elsewhere. We knew that Blue Hill had just finished their uh, climate change, sea level rise plan. So we invited people from Blue Hill to join us. And it became very apparent that we had a lot of interconnected issues with Blue Hill. And um, Brooksville already had a good relationship working with Sedgwick on other issues. So there arose the idea that we can handle this a lot more efficiently, with a lot more expertise, a lot more experience, if we have monthly meetings and discuss these issues. So that was the beginning of Peninsula Tomorrow. And at the very first meeting, we had people from um, the DOT, main DOT, from the Department of Agriculture, Conservation and Forestry. We had people from the governor's office of, of climate change come and talk with us about how we could work effectively together. And those monthly meetings continue to be a source of great information and inspiration for how we can work collegially. One of the really positive things has been people are saying to us, you know, this is a, a really nice way of working. We haven't done as much of this in the past, and we're really learning a lot from each other. Really, the whole concept of these meetings is everyone teaches and everyone learns. Mm. It, it strikes me as though that kind of effort is a, a community building effort, as well as um, a focus on climate change. It really is. Uh, those connections are so important. And I like to think that in a topic that is as overwhelming and as important and as complex, it's really important that we move at the speed of trust, not at mm. the speed of voice, not at the speed of sound, but move at the speed of trust. And that's what these meetings have helped us do in Peninsula Tomorrow, get to know each other. And based on that knowledge of both the issues and our own specific community needs, I foresee a great deal of opportunity to secure some of the new federal funding that's coming through, also partake of the state programs that the Governor's Office of Policy Innovation in the Future has been spearheading along with other cabinet level departments. Um, we have really a once in a lifetime opportunity as communities to utilize to our advantage and to the advantage of the state and to others as well, the value of these new programs that are offering new opportunities for funding. And I would couple that with also what's really, and I think you've used the word community building, it's really looking at what we can do on our own, uh, sort of uh, building up from a very community basic granular level. Great. We're doing it both ways. Great. Well, Alan, thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. That was um, Alan Kratz um, speaking about his work with the Blue Hill Peninsula Tomorrow Climate Coalition. You're listening to Talk of the Towns. Um, here with us are Johanna Blackman, the Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive. Mary Blackstone is the Community Liaison with Green Ellsworth. And Kathleen Sullivan is the Acting Lead for Freeport Climate Action Now. Um, uh, 
Johanna has just uh, mentioned a few minutes ago um, some of the actions that that group has taken. Um, Kathleen, are, um, you're relatively new. Is there anything that you want to brag about in terms of what you've already done besides bringing people together, which is such an important thing? Well, I don't think I want to brag about exactly what we've accomplished yet in terms of the outcome of a plan because we're so new. But I do want to brag about the fact that we have um, put together these 10, we've actually eight committees, very similar to the ones to the ones that Joanna was just talking about. We have a solar committee, we have a housing committee, we have a food committee, we have a land and waters committee, we have a transportation committee. And each one of those committees is doing the same process that I spoke about earlier, bringing together people who are talking about their concerns and then sharing their ideas about what kinds of actions we can take so that there's a sense of ownership of those actions. It's not like it's top down. It's really, uh, to use a word that uh, Johanna has taught me, emergent. There's a lot of ideas that are emergent. We have enormous amounts of expertise in this town. We have people who know all kinds of things. And now they're coming together in these groups to inform each other of ideas and then to come up with the action plan that, uh, that works for this town and those people at this moment that they feel ownership of. And I'm very excited about that, that, that this is, and everybody's beginning to get a real sense of energy around the plans and around, uh, oh, we also have a municipal government plan so that we can begin to, to have a climate action plan in the town because they were a little, that's why we're not, a, don't belong to the government. We're not a subsidiary of, of the Freeport town government in any way, but a kind of, you know, we work from the outside, not yep. inside, and yep. we can get a lot more done that way. So, Mary, Mary, your experience was to actually go to the town and say, wouldn't you get involved with us? Um, tell us a little bit more about the connection between the Ellsworth city government and um, the efforts of Green Ellsworth. Um, uh, well, Michelle Gagnon uh, saw immediately the benefits of uh, if you're doing a comprehensive plan, having this um a green plan going along simultaneously. So we worked closely with her and several planners that came after her. She moved on, actually, MDI inherited her. Uh, so that was good for them. Um, and it, it was hugely helpful, um, something that, for instance, wouldn't perhaps or hadn't happened previously that came out of the the city's engagement with Green Ellsworth was um, our annual cleanup of Card Brook. Uh, it is an urban impaired stream, uh, which hopefully the city will be able to take steps to change. Um, but, you know, they, the city took responsibility, each one of the nonprofits. And that's perhaps a bit of a different uh, scenario for Green Ellsworth from the other two groups here, I'm not sure, and that is that we have nonprofits uh, or organizations like the city who sit at the table and actively take a responsibility for particular areas of work. Um, so the city took that on and organized, you know, that that Cardbrook um, undertaking. Another uh, early thing to brag about with Green Ellsworth is that um, we, we called for submissions from the community, received some very substantial, like 30-page submissions from people in the community uh, towards the Green Plan. And one of those submissions, though, was very simple. It was one page. Half of it was a photograph. 
and the other half was a very simple statement. Um, the photograph was a picture of a lawn, a, a city park area uh, with a pesticide sign on it. And then underneath it uh, was a sign, it was a statement, why are we doing this to our children? And um, Michelle Gagnon actually sent it to the recreation committee that was responsible for the upkeep of, of parks and, and said, I want you to see this. This was before Green Ellsworth even started to meet. It was just when we were getting submissions. Um, and the committee said, right, so we go organic. And from that point on, they went, they've been, uh, you know, caring for their uh, parks organically. So those are just a, a couple of really practical suggestions of how engaging the city uh, has been a benefit. I will confess that our recent, um, the recent involvement of the city in Green Ellsworth has not been great. Uh, the current planner does not sit at our table. And it's a good example of how we could perhaps be moving forward more swiftly if the city planner were able to sit at our table. Mm. I, I was struck by one of Alan's comments in, in the short interview. He talked about moving at the speed of trust. And it's, it strikes me as though that's really essential in the work that, that all of you are doing is, is trying to figure out what will get us um, along that path, um, but it can't go any faster than that element of trust. The other thing that strikes me is that this is not a, a unidimensional um, look at climate. Each of you have task forces and groups that kind of span the waterfront, if you will, um, to talk about all of the way ways in which um, we are connected to our climate, uh, whether that's housing or transportation or food systems or um, simple things like um, LED lights or conservation of energy. Um, what else would you say about some of your accomplishments? And then we'll turn to some of the work that Johanna is talking about um, in terms of statewide. But Johanna, would you uh, want to add anything more to your list of things that, that you feel particularly good about um, with the climate to thrive at this point? I think I would take a moment just to really call out our internship program, not because not only because I feel really good about it, but also because I think it's been really instrumental in how we've grown as an organization. Um, and so, you know, from very early on, we knew that we wanted to prioritize working with young people in a really meaningful way. Um, and so really, you know, meeting with them and and having their vision and their concerns and, and their work shape our organization. And so we started an internship program um, in 2017, and it's grown since and is pointed to um, a lot as an example of, you know, what hands-on learning in development and implementation of climate solutions can look like, because our interns are working on things like, um, you know, passing a solar ordinance in their town, or, um, you know, a, a campaign for restaurants to reduce waste, or developing a campaign for homeowners to understand the various, you know, um, uh, the various things that they can access through efficiency main trust to attend to energy efficiency or to um, purchase an electric vehicle or, you know, whatever it might be. And so they're gaining that understanding as they develop these programs. And I think that that's so important because um, I think, you know, as I, as I talk with young people, if they are learning about climate science in school and too many still are not, 
But if they are learning about climate science in school, that is a lot to learn about without having either emotional support accompanying that learning or a very clear and meaningful pathway to make a difference. And I'm not talking about walking along the side of the road and picking up trash because the connection between that and climate change is sometimes hard to make, um, but really being involved in their community, making a difference in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and understanding how they can shift structures um, and systems wider than their immediate community as well. And so I think that's something that, you know, watching that grow and happen has really informed how we think about our work and about what's really important within our work. And of course, young people, um, people they influence most perhaps are their parents. So if they're taking home um, either lessons from school or the lessons from actually getting involved in a project, that's going to have um, ripple effects. Mary, I know that um, Green Ellsworth has involved um, younger um, folks. Um, I, I think uh, I remember um, something about uh, making Ellsworth more walkable. And that was kind of led by a young man who didn't have a car, as I recall, or he wanted to walk in Ellsworth. Tell, tell us more a little bit about the young people in, in, in Green Ellsworth. Well, as I said, that initial forum that we had in 2017, there were all ages represented, which to me was one of the most hopeful signs for that, that meeting. And um, one of the people was that uh, young man, Nick Navarre, and uh, Nick was then in high school. Um, and he was very, very interested in the walkability uh, side of things. And he became a, an instant member of Green Ellsworth and actually decided to chair uh, the committee having to do with walkability and actions related to walkability, everything from pedestrian uh, crossing uh, inventories to um, lobbying the city for, for better maintenance of the sidewalks and that kind of thing, uh, as well as public transportation. So, um, and he's still very involved. He maintains our, our Facebook page. Uh, so, you know, it, it, that, that is, I think, a good example how, of how young people just don't, don't hive them off, just bring them into the fold and listen to what they want to do and make it possible for them to act. It's their future mm. that we're talking about. So it needs to be owned by them. Kathleen, you started with this, the story of your own daughter. Um, what about um, young people in, in uh, your present efforts at uh, Freeport Climate Action now? Um, how are young people involved? Yeah, it's a really good question. At the present moment, we don't have young people involved. Um, we haven't been approached by any young people. And I want to be very careful about how we approach young people because exactly because of what Johanna was saying about this being, um, a, you know, if you're 12, if you're 11 years old and you're coming to understand what your future looks like, I don't think you have a lot of cognitive capacity to understand the terror of that, you know. And I think I w whatever work that we do do with people, I would want to be very prepared to see what kind of education they're getting about it and what kind of, how we support them in the kind of actions that they take. And I do remember when we were working with kids back around the banning styrofoam, that people were critical of us sort of using the children. And, you know, I understood that back then. I, I sort of thought they were using us, <laughs> you know, in terms of they needed to use our 
strength and our to be able to have the power. And I don't think they felt used themselves. But I want to be very careful when we work with kids in the future. Do it thoughtfully, and we haven't had the time to figure that out. Sure. Well, you're you're a young young group in that in that respect, and it and it it seems like what you're talking about it throughout is. Uh, genuineness. Um, we don't want this to be um, tokenism. We don't want it to be um, surfacial. We want it to be deep. And that means that people have to um, join um, um, through that genuine kind of notion. Um, I want to just uh, remind listeners, they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. You're listening to us talk about climate-based community action in Maine. And uh, guests um, include Kathleen Sullivan, acting lead from Freeport Climate Action Now, Mary Blackstone, community liaison at Green Ellsworth, and Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive on Mount Desert Island. Johanna, you've been um, also thinking about what does the statewide kind of connection look like? And A Climate to Thrive has has begun that work. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you're connected to some of these other community groups. Sure. So very early on, you know, we were sitting around those potluck dinners. Um, we recognized that, you know, we want to do this work and have this very ambitious goal for our community. And it would be great if we can accomplish it. And that alone is not going to do much to change climate change. Um, and so, you know, the, the most effective thing we can do is build a model that can be replicated, recognizing that every community has different um, challenges and different opportunities. And so it will never be exactly the same, but you know, that there are things that we can do that can be shared with others. And so over the years um, we've had, you know, connections with various different communities, reaching out to us, asking for support or guidance or feedback, or just to collaborate. Um, and, and that's been wonderful. And then this past fall, um, shortly after I actually stepped into this formal position as executive director, there was a week in October where nine different communities from throughout the state reached out to a climate to in one week, asking for support or guidance. And a lot of them were asking the same questions. And I said, okay, it's time to, yes, including Freeport Camp. I said, it's time to formalize this. Um, and it's such an opportunity because so many of us are going to be doing similar things like weatherized campaigns for homeowners or solarized campaigns for homeowners or figuring how to support businesses in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions or writing, helping writing or helping support for municipal climate action plans. And so rather than duplicating each other's work, let's start connecting. Um, and so I, I started to um, reach out to the groups that have reached out to us and said, you know, what would be most helpful? How about if we all started meeting monthly and each month, you know, we have time to share and network, but we also could identify as a group, a topic that we want to really dive into um, and do kind of some training or some group reflection around to help us get further along that, that whatever that topic is. And so that has started. Um, and I, when we, we talk about it, we talk about this being for community-based solutions-focused climate groups. And what we mean when we talk about it, and this is a meaning that has come to be very um, important to a climate to thrive, is that these are groups that are focused on climate solutions that are developed and implemented with a very high degree of community participation. 
the, the idea being that when climate solutions are developed and implemented in that way, they're going to be best designed to serve the community that they're intended to serve rather than handed down from some other entity without developing any kind of community understanding or community buy-in or being molded by the community to meet their needs. And the other key piece of it is that these are actions that are focused on whenever possible, trying to build community equity and resilience through the implementation of those solutions. So there's lots of ways that we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Some of them will be owned by large-scale corporations and investors. Some of them will be more distributed ownership that will actually build equity within small communities. And so that's where our focus um, has been whenever possible, is is to bring that ownership to the community level. And again, it sounds like um, the success stories that our other guests have shared is is that community ownership um, is is where it starts. Um, uh, Mary Blackstone, would, what would you add to Johanna's um, thoughts about um, kind of expanding um, and and networking um, some of these things? How 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 would that make sense to you? Um, well, uh, networking. There are several rec- recommendations in our green plan uh, that we need to reach beyond our our city and connect with other organizations. So a recommendation that there become a Hancock County uh, group of um, sustainability related climate uh, related um, organizations and that we work together on things such as recycling, where we could as a group could, could make a big difference to our capacity to maximize um, our um, benefits uh, from recycling. So the other area that um, there was a strong recommendation for networking, reaching beyond the community, uh, was in our water chapter. We we have um, four basic chapters in our green plan, one relating to water, one relating to land, and uh, another food and farming, and another having to do with infrastructure, which included transportation, um, energy, and waste. Um, And in the water chapter, that particular chapter said, you know, water doesn't respect boundaries. Whatever's an issue upstream outside of Ellsworth is going to be uh, an issue in Ellsworth downstream as far as the Union River is concerned. So we have a strong recommendation uh, to form a Union River network, uh, Union River watershed network. Um, And with the discovery of milfoil in Uh, Alamusic Lake, first in Hancock County, uh, it's become an even more timely um, concept. So working together at that kind of networked level just makes sense because we're talking here, ultimately, uh, you know, Green Ellsworth comes from the standpoint of sustainability and climate uh, resiliency is part of that sustainability. It's really part of a much larger issue of all of us behaving sustainably in the way in which we relate to our environment. And, you know, the, an environment like the water system, um, it crosses boundaries. It doesn't respect municipal boundaries. We need to respect our ecological system across boundaries. So it just makes sense when you're working in this area to talk about sustainability across boundaries and how we can maximize our impact uh, perhaps we'll get to this in a minute, but I think 
you know, I'm, I am this, this whole process of Green Ellsworth came out of a, a strong community movement that's just gotten stronger and stronger on like a snowball. Um, but at the same time, we need to be thinking about the way in which our local systems are really contained within much larger systems that compromise our capacity to have effect at the local level. So it's really important to me that while we think locally, we start to network beyond our immediate area, that we think about how we can each individually shift those large systems that are really uh, going to make a, a huge, huge impact. So with Green Ellsworth, we're very lucky to have Nicole Grahowski as a very active member involved with our um, uh, organization. And because she is a representative at the state level, she's been in a position to be able to make significant change at a at a large level, potentially at a national level with uh, leading the charge for a producer pay recycling program, the first in the country, although not certainly the first in North America. Um, that's going to have a system-wide, a, a broad system-wide impact. Uh, and, I, and I think that we need to be thinking about the multiple prongs of this work um, when and being networked is a, is an important part of that. Mm. Um, I think all of you have used in, in one way or another the notion of, of climate justice um, as, as one of the um, ultimate goals. And that talks to both systems as well as things that happen at the local level. Um, Johanna, could you get us started in, in thinking about what uh, climate justice means or what it looks like on the ground? Sure. So I think first the question is who um, is involved in planning, who is involved in thinking about this and talking about it at a community level. And if people aren't involved, why? Hmm. Um, and so looking at that. But then, you know, what I talk a lot about is this concept of community equity and community ownership of solutions. And so just one example of what this can look like, um, we can take from looking at solar ownership. So solar ownership can build a tremendous amount of equity for individuals, for um, businesses, for municipalities. Um on the other hand, there is a model of subscribing to solar. And I think a lot of people probably receive those flyers in the mail from companies that are selling solar subscriptions to large-scale arrays, and they're calling it community solar, um, which I take a little bit of issue with because that solar is not owned by a community. Um, it's probably not cited with any kind of conversation with the community in which the large array was, was planted. And it's, it's owned by an outside investor. Um, it has a important role to play, you know, I think in the transition to a clean energy future, but we want to be really deliberate about how that role is being played. And very often low and moderate income homeowners are only given subscription to solar as an option that, you know, that's, that's the best way to go. Um, and so what we're trying to do at A Climate to Thrive is develop a cooperative financial model for solar ownership so that, you know, low and moderate income homeowners can actually own solar because the most that you get through subscribing is um, a small, very small percentage off your monthly energy bill. But if you own your own array, you're building very substantial long-term equity. And so we don't want that type of ownership to be something that is not available to everybody. Um, and that's just one example of what, you know, really pushing for distributed local, local ownership of solutions can look like. Kathleen, what would that... Um 
concept of climate justice? How does that play out um, in some of the work that you, you've done in the past, um, but might be applied um, to um, Freeport climate action now? Right. I mean, I think that's exactly what we have to learn about and, and have to get a lot uh, more granular about in, in our term, in our town. There's a lot of talk about equity and social justice. Um, and I think for us, the idea for me and for everybody in our group is how, what does that actually look like? Mm-hmm. And, and Johanna has been really helpful in just the example she just gave right now about being able to have, uh, for lower income people to be able to have ownership of their own solar array. Um, and actually I asked her if she would uh, help Freeport. I just wanna thank her organization for being so involved and connected and teaching those of us who are really just babies at this, how to start to walk and maybe run someday. And one of the things she's going to do is to run, uh, is to give the, the, the next time we all meet together as a group, She's going to have a talk to, to us about this issue of equity and social justice and how it's played out in, in her town so that we can really understand more what that looks like for Freeport, right. which we call a long driveway town. You know, the, the people, you know, we're a pretty well off town, but we're not totally well off. You know, we have um, 20% of our students are on federal lunch programs. Or, so, the, you know, we have some degree of um, poverty here, you know, and how do we work with all of those groups? But we we don't yet have the answer because <laughs> we need to learn. Great, great. Mary, um, any any thoughts about this notion of, of uh, climate uh, justice um, as, as Green Ellsworth proceeds? Well, um, I, I will say that uh, Johanna's uh, comment about you you look around and see who's participating and who isn't there. And so having, having public forums that are wide open gives you a good opportunity. Uh, we always uh, give people a little questionnaire to fill in as to who, who they are, where they came from, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're obviously interested to make sure that we're getting a good participation from elsewhere citizens, but um you have to work at it. At least that's been our expect, expectation that you, you really have to work at it. So one of the early efforts that our um, energy and waste group did was a weatherization oriented uh, project. And it was very specifically targeted to go deep into the community. At that point, um, you know, the city was very helpful in sending out um notices broadly um, in in the community. And the uptake on our weatherization was, um, uh, what shall I say? Uh, let, let's say it was far greater than we expected that it would be and that the company that had been contracted to do the work expected it, that it would be. So it was a little bit of a challenge to actually complete that project. Um, and I think in the weatherization um, campaign, we really did begin to get people engaged from a broad cross-section of the community, both elderly, lower income people. There was there was a really good cross-section. And I, I think that that program helped to signal that everybody is welcome, that everybody's concerns were welcome. And so that migrated into areas like... Um, planning tree tree planting projects 
in the community um, because there are areas of the community that have lots of lovely trees and there are areas that don't. And so, you know, that, that is, uh, I think it's an example of how you find a topic or an area of work that is of particular interest to a broad group with a, a focus on equity here, and then try to shift uh, those people into feeling more comfortable to being engaged in the broader topic. One area, if, if people uh, go to our website, greenelsworth.org, you can, can read our plan. Um, the chapter on food and farming is heavily oriented in the direction of uh, climate justice. Um, so that we have a more equitable, more locally based uh, food system. And they have some, uh, it, it's going to take, this is a 10-year plan. It's going to take them a while to enact some of the plans that they have for uh, a central food hub that could actually ensure Hancock County and possibly Washington County um, food equity. But um, this, is, this is a huge area that um, that particular team is working on. So um, those, are, those are a couple of examples of how you try to get climate justice embedded in your process. Great. Well, um, the hour is slipping by much too fast. Um, perhaps each of you could um, list one or two things that you want listeners to know about your organizations and um, the work that you're taking on in the next couple of months or the next, um, next six months or say. Uh, Johanna, can we start with you? Sure. Um, what I would want to just draw a highlight to is um, that, you know, there's this kind of focus sometimes on the individual greenhouse gas or carbon footprint and recycling, you know, is a place we all go because we've been trained to go, but that there are really great things that you can do in your home, that it will save you money and make your home um, more comfortable. And so right now, Climate Society is doing a weatherized campaign, but we're gearing up towards a campaign that would help um, home and business and owners and hopefully organizations as well with weatherization electrifications, this is like electrifying anything that uses oil or gas, um, primarily heat, um, and also getting access to home EV chargers, um, and then solar, and, and combine that all into one campaign, one website, one place where homeowners can come and access all of those things um, and learn what financial support there is through things like efficiency main trust, because these things are affordable um, if you know where to look. And that's what I think is confusing and difficult and people don't have time for. So they need that support. So we're going to pull this all together and it'll launch later this year. Great. Mary Blackstone, what, what do you want people to know about um, your organization coming up? Um, we have a, in each of our areas, our chapters of the, of the green plan, we have specific action teams that are working. And so I'm, I'm treading a, a, a little line here and not leaving anybody out in the process. But um, uh, certainly as far as water is concerned right now, we're, we're launch, going to be launching some Union River uh, forums and developing a whole plan around the Union River and the sustainability of the Union River and its impact in Ellsworth, but also um, broader afield. Um, we're also, for the, the land uh, area, we have a number of projects going on there, but probably most importantly, we're continuing our, our tree planting campaign, which has been, if you want to engage the community, in a hands-on project, which a lot of people are, that's all they're interested in is just a hands-on project. I cannot 
oh, I, I cannot over-recommend a tree planting program. It has been a huge hit in Ellsworth, uh, very, very popular. All right, and uh, certainly in our energy and waste area, there is a lot of work around community solar and a lot of work very immediately coming up on uh, both Cardbrook and roadside cleanup. Kathleen, to you, um, what, what do you want listeners to know about what's happening in Freeport? Well, what I'd like the listeners to know about is what happened in Freeport, which is that in the course of nine months, we were able to start this. And I think what it speaks to is the fact that people are ready. It, two years ago, I don't think that people were in the same place that they are now. I think people are feeling really a lot more emotion about this. They're feeling a lot more fear and worry. And I think they need that they need to be invited that all it takes is an invitation. And that, that while what we have done may look like in a, I could never do it, what I want to tell your listeners is you can do it mm. because the energy is out there. It just needs a little bit of leadership. So if anybody is even considering the idea that they should do this in their town, I would say go for it. We need you. Great. And uh, Johanna, um, the uh, Climate to Thrive is, is one place that you might find out about um, this kind of statewide effort um, to kind of c- coordinate or at least network around these issues. Um, if you just re- remind listeners about your website. Sure. It's a climate to thrive.org. Um, and you can look for under projects, local leads the way. Great. Well, I'm sorry not to get to some of the other questions. We we have at least another hour of conversation. We'll have to do it another time. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for new topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Please tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant, 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland Music recording. Thanks to our guests this morning or this afternoon, Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive in Mount Desert Island, Mary Blackstone, Community Liaison of Green Ellsworth, Kathleen Sullivan, Acting Lead at Freeport Community Action Now, and Alan Kratz, Blue Hill Peninsula Tomorrow Climate Coalition. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown and Joel Mann for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>